Is it possible for a working woman to achieve sainthood? What obstacles might she expect to encounter? The following is from Venerable Fulton Sheen's Three to Get Married. Quote, the pains a woman bears in labor help to expiate the sins of mankind and draw their meaning from the agony of Christ on the cross. Mothers are, therefore, not only co-creators with God, they are co-redeemers with Christ in the flesh, as the apostle is a co-redeemer in both the flesh and the spirit. End quote. Last month in our series, Allergies and Addictions, we hypothesized about a scenario where a husband prevents his wife from experiencing pregnancy and childbirth under the guise of supposedly seeking to spare her the difficulties of such experiences. We pointed out that provided that she is perfectly capable of experiencing pregnancy and childbirth, for him to prevent her from experiencing these things for which God has designed her and through which God intends to sanctify her would be cruel on the husband's part. We drew that analogy out and flipped the tables. It is objectively cruel for women to prevent their husbands from undergoing those experiences and undertaking those tasks for which God designed men and through which he intends for our husbands to be sanctified. Now, last week we spent our entire episode outlining a game plan for how wives can help husbands thrive in the area of financial management because God designed men to manage finances for his household and associate money management with his self-worth. And at the end of last week's episode, I asked wives to hold off and pray about doing anything if they were at all considering the game plan that we outlined, but were on the fence about sticking with it. And I promised to begin this episode with explaining why. Well, let's go back to that analogy about the husband who prevents a wife from experiencing pregnancy and childbirth. Let's say that a husband decides, decides to give a wife a trial run. Let's say that she makes it through pregnancy and childbirth, but after a few months, he decides that she's just not handling parenting well. He decides that she's just not that good at being a mom. He decides that she's not handling postpartum hormones well. He doesn't like that she's always tired and grumpy. He doesn't like that maybe she's overly focused on the baby and is largely unavailable to him. And so he decides that the solution is to put the child up for adoption. At this point, the child is already, say, six months old. Now, can you understand how cruel that would be? Well, if you can then understand that it would be equally cruel for a wife to follow the game plan which we outlined last week, which effectively hands financial management off to her husband, and for her to do so with the intention of only giving him a trial run. What would it do to your marriage if your husband put you on a trial run of motherhood? If he took your child away because he thought you weren't turning out to be a good mom, could your relationship bounce back from that level of betrayal? 
If you think that seems extreme, again, remember that men associate financial management with their self-worth. How important is it to you to be a good mom? Would you say that you associate your sense of success as a parent with your sense of self-worth? I shared that quote from Archbishop Fulton Sheen at the beginning of our episode because it's important for us to understand that the role God intends for our husbands to play in the grand scheme of salvation history as, is just as pivotal as that role given to us wives. If you enact the game plan which we outlined last week, there is no trial period any more than there would be a trial period for parenthood for you. Who is a husband, a fallen human being, to decide that six months or a year or any length of time is enough to determine that their wife is or is not doing well in the role which God has given her? Who then is a wife to decide that six months or a year or whatever length of time is long enough to see if her husband can prove himself to be good enough at the task which God has set for him. There is no trial period. If you're going to jump, you jump. So with that said, there are uh, situations where we would caution you against jumping. If your husband has a gambling issue, (laughs) obviously this would not be advisable. (laughs) Please talk to a priest about that one because I tend to think that that would fall under being obedient to our husband in all things but sin. And a gambling problem is a serious sin. But please don't take my word for that. Please do speak to a trusted priest if your husband has a gambling problem and ask what the correct course of action is for you with regards to his financial headship. Um, Another situation would be if your husband is currently hospitalized. That would be a situation where you might need to take over for a certain period of time. I think there are some pretty obvious common sense minority situations. I don't think I need to give a ton of examples for you to get the point. But another situation in which I would caution a wife from jumping immediately would be if she does not yet have the discipline of joy reasonably down. This game plan absolutely demands the discipline of joy. But with that said, if a wife is seriously pursuing sainthood, that excuse is not going to last long. If a wife is serious about pursuing sainthood, then she will be taking seriously the fact that joy is the mark of a Christian. And she should be fighting tooth and nail to move her marriage ever closer to a more solidly biblical model of marriage. A biblical marriage is one where the husband is the breadwinner, provides for his household, is the primary manager of the finances, sets the standards for discipline for the children, has the last say on all household matters, etc. Eve was given to Adam to be his helpmeet. Woman was not given to the world alone and for her own sake. She was given to man. This goes back to the passage we heard in episode 2 from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 to 9. Quote, woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. End quote. 
Man is oriented directly towards God, towards his creator, whereas woman is oriented towards God through her husband, towards her creator through him from whom she was drawn. When you train in martial arts, um, when you train with weapons, you're taught to think of the weapon as an extension of your own hand. And this is actually a really good way to understand ourselves as wives. The weapon is its own thing and its own right. It exists apart from the person wielding it, but its efficacy depends on this concept of treating it as an extension of the arm. Woman made from a rib taken from man's side is an extension of him and is most effective in her role as a wife if she understands herself to be an extension of her husband as part of him, even though she exists apart from him. So here, with that said, we're going to insert a very brief commentary, maybe not that brief, a commentary <laughs> on a scenario which requires no remediation. We said we were going to address three scenarios that might demand some work from us wives, and we'll recap what those were shortly. We've already addressed two. Before we hit the third, I want to offer some commentary on a perfectly acceptable situation where a wife might be supplementing the income. We stated that it is not a sin for women to work, and I think that that statement is in a sense verified for us by the fact that there are married women saints who worked. Saint Gianna Beretta Mola was a pediatrician. Saint Zili Martin was a lace maker, to give two examples. What's important to recognize, however, is simply that work can be an occasion of sin for a married woman, secondarily in its potential to give her an excuse to neglect her children, but primarily in its potential to cause her to emasculate her husband. So a situation which requires no remediation and which is thoroughly permissible and possibly even laudable is one in which a submissive and obedient wife might be assisting her husband by supplementing the income. But the submission and the obedience are what make this situation not just okay, but actually a situation where the family can thrive and strive for holiness. So let's detail what an orderly sanctifying situation with a working wife would look like. Number one, that she submits to her husband with regards to the finances. If a woman is supplementing the income, whatever she brings in is for her husband to manage for the good of the entire family. Since Gianna and Zili did not use their income as some kind of power play against their husbands. They didn't use that money to fund unnecessary extravagances. They did not use their income as some sort of excuse to be released from their husband's prudence. In short, for the working married wife seeking sainthood, the money is not generally or automatically there for her to use however she pleases. Now, a husband may, of course, choose to be generous with his wife and give her money for various things, including some amount which perhaps he chooses to place no restrictions on and that she may, she may choose to use purely for her entertainment as her conscience allows. As head of the family, that's his prerogative. We've said before that men who feel accepted, appreciated, and trusted are disposed to be very generous with their wives who build them up and make their homes their havens. But the supplemental income which a wife may bring in is not to grant her some sort of disordered independence from her husband. 
since Gianna and Zili did not keep their money out of their husband's control. Whatever money they brought in was for their husband to allocate as he saw fit on behalf of the entire family. And so number two is that a wife working to supplement the family income submits to any parameters which her husband sets with regards to her work. The husband is responsible for determining what is necessary for his household. Now, this can be a very great burden for wives whose husbands are, shall we say, not as virtuous as they ought to be and require their wives to work a great deal in order to fund their own laziness. I acknowledge freely that these situations exist, and to those women, it pains me to say that obedience is owed to the husband. Again, because it's not a sin for her to be working, and what it comes down to is that justice is God's. And he knows if a husband, and certainly God knows if a man is demanding more of his wife in this area than is reasonable. Hold that thought, though. We're going to come back to that very, very shortly. To close out the second point and bring us to our third, a wife should not work more than what her husband wants her to work. That's really the point that I want to get at with this second point. Saints Zili and Gianna would most certainly not have been disobedient to their husbands if he determined that they were working too much. Why? Because number three, in an acceptable orderly situation, a wife does not abdicate her role as keeper and cultivator of culture in their home. That is still her primary role. Women can undoubtedly contribute great things to the world, and right now I'm thinking of many Catholic married female authors who are just making incredible waves in Catholic circles. Women like Layla Miller, Lila Lawler, Alice von Hildebrand. I mean, amazing women. Their work undoubtedly takes focused, dedicated time, which they must spend in some portion away from their husband and children, even if it's just sitting in the office with the door closed in order to write the books that they're writing. But these women do not, did not, in the case of the late Alice von Hildebrand, abdicate their role in the home. No matter how much or how little a wife works, she is not relieved of those situations for which God has designed her. So it is in her best interest with regards to her salvation to work as little as her husband will allow. And so I said that we would come back to the previous thought just a minute ago regarding a husband who is requiring his wife to work more than is reasonable. A husband who deeply appreciates his wife's efforts to make home a haven a place where he can count on being refreshed and rejuvenated, will not ask a wife to spend more of her time than is absolutely necessary away from that task of making their home his pleasant and uplifting refuge. We can be assured that Saints Zili and Gianna never use their work as an excuse for failing to meet the daily needs of their husbands or their children respectively. So to sum up, if a wife is working to supplement the household income, if she is submissive to her husband with regards to the finances, if she is submissive with regards to how much or how little she works, and she continues to strive for excellence in her task of sanctifying the home and does not expect her husband to relieve her in this area, then this is not a case of overextension or emasculation, but rather a situation of order, which is therefore conducive to growth 
in holiness. Okay, ladies, so we said that we were going to cover three different scenarios. Let's quickly recap what those were. The first scenario was that in which the husband is currently the breadwinner and currently the primary manager of the finances. In episode 22, we gave seven ways to help your husband thrive in his role as the breadwinner. And then last week in episode 23, we gave a game plan for how to help him thrive as the financial manager, especially with regards to asking for money respectfully. The second scenario was one in which the wife is currently overextending herself. With regards to financial management, what we mean by that is that her husband has not yet developed the confidence that he ought to have with regards to financial management. Men associate work and financial management with their self-worth, and so it is healthy for the husband and therefore for the entire family for the man to be confident in his ability to provide for his family and in his ability to manage money well. So the second scenario was one in which the wife needs to do something to remedy a situation where she has previously been emasculating her husband by managing the finances, meaning that this is not something that he has delegated to her from a place of confidence, from a place of knowing that he has the ability to take over the finances again at any time, but rather a situation where the wife initiated her own management of the finances And her continuing to do so is feeding into her husband's fears regarding his incompetence. So in order to build her husband up and to respect the authority with which God has clothed her husband, to respect the role for which her husband was designed, it is imperative that she give her husband the opportunity to demonstrate financial headship. He might choose to delegate the finances to her again down the road. But first, he needs to demonstrate his competence with regards to financial headship and to feel that he is competent. So the game plan that we spent all of the last episode outlining was also applicable to the second scenario. Then we briefly inserted a commentary on a situation which does not need remedy, a situation in which a wife is properly submissive, properly attentive to her God-given tasks, and maybe supplementing the income in obedience to her husband and according to his prudential judgment for his entire household. So now let's tackle, or at least begin to tackle, because there's a lot to be said here, our third scenario. What if the wife is currently the primary or even sole breadwinner? We're going to break up tackling this topic in the following manner. First, we'll talk about what a 1% situation looks like, where the wife being the primary or even sole breadwinner is actually necessary and even irreversible. Then we'll talk about reasons that a wife will fight to stay in a situation that is not a 1% situation. We'll talk about sinful attitudes that wives adopt in order to justify their staying the primary or sole breadwinner. And in this way, we will also effectively highlight the indications that this current situation is not a 1% situation, meaning that it is a situation that can be remedied. And so we'll talk about how marriages suffer due to this unnecessary role reversal. 
Third, we will talk about what to do if you're in a situation that can be reversed. And we'll break that up further into two parts. What to do if your husband is open to the situation being remedied. How to set him up for success. And then also what to do if your husband is not open to fixing the situation. And finally, we'll come back to the 1% situation and discuss how to mitigate the suffering which often comes with this sort of situation. So, what is a 1% situation? To preface, let's be clear that there are consequences of sin which are the consequences of our own actions, of our own sins, and then there are consequences of sin in a general sense which are hereditary. Because we are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. So, example, a car accident. If you're the drunk driver and you hit someone, yes, you ending up in the hospital and or in jail is a consequence of your sin, your alcohol abuse. But the person who ends up in the hospital because he happened to be in the path of the drunk driver, we also call his suffering the consequences of sin. But here we mean that the consequences of sin include illness, injury, pain, suffering. And it's not because he did anything specifically to deserve getting hit by a drunk driver. So with that said, a 1% situation is where a husband is incapable of working. We call this sort of situation the consequences of sin. And we mean the hereditary consequences of sin because the entire family suffers even though there may not be or have been any wrongdoing on the part of either the husband or the wife. Now, why does the family suffer? Because there is always suffering when disorder is present. Order in a marriage means that the husband is the pastor of, the provider for, and the protector of his family. And that the wife is the life giver, the nurturer, the keeper and cultivator of culture in their home. Whenever this order is compromised in some fashion, no matter how small, there is some suffering that accompanies the disorder. Now, I want to reiterate the definition of a 1% situation, that this is a situation where the husband is incapable of working. I did not say situations where the husband does not want to pastor provide and or protect or situations where the wife does not want to be the life giver and nurturer if either the husband or the wife desire openly to abdicate their god-given roles these are disordered desires these are sinful desires it is not for us to pick and choose which parts of god's design we will or will not conform to and so a situation in which either spouse desires to abdicate their role is a formational issue. And that launches us right into the second part of our commentary. Why would a wife fight to stay in a situation where the role reversal is not necessary? Well, (laughs) it's often some mix of fear, but also of sinful willfulness and sinful desires. The following is just a small sampling of examples and is by no means comprehensive, but I think it gives a good general idea of what this looks like. Wanting to have control of the money. Being unwilling to surrender the finances 
not wanting to have any spending restrictions imposed upon her by her husband, not wanting her husband to have any input on how and where and when she spends money, being unwilling to live a less extravagant lifestyle, being afraid that their quality of life will diminish if she relies on her husband, not wanting to work on respect, not wanting to work on submission, Wanting to have something to hold against her husband. Wanting to have a reason to blame her husband for whatever goes wrong in the home culture, both in the marriage and with their children. Because again, her responsibility for culture in the home remains, no matter how many hours she's working or how much money she's making. And if the home culture is not a very good one, then continuing to work is one way for her to avoid facing her objective failure to fulfill her God-given role. And so we also see women who want to have an excuse for avoiding those tasks for which God designed her, wanting to have an excuse for her poor fulfillment of her obligations in her marriage and sometimes in her parenting, but more often in her marriage. More recently, we're seeing a great buy-in and indulging in the trendy victim mentality of the world, but also wanting great renown in the world, pride, wanting to be recognized, wanting to compete with men, enjoying emasculating men, which is diabolical, enjoying making men submit to her, wanting to be held in higher esteem than her husband. Again, this is but a very small sampling of the disordered reasons that a wife will hold on to being the sole or primary breadwinner. But I think you can get a pretty good sense of what I'm getting at with these examples. And what's important to understand is that the presence of any of these disordered attitudes is a clue, an indicator that this is not a 1% situation. An indicator that the situation can be remedied and the marriage properly ordered according to God's designs is precisely a desire to not want to conform to God's designs. The other thing that points to the probability of a situation not being a 1% situation is wives trying to stretch the definition of incapable. Visible physical incapability is difficult to stretch. If a man can drive himself around and go to the bar with his friends, he can get a job. But invisible physical incapability also known as mental health, is one that women who want some measure of control over their husbands will really stress. And I say invisible because a legitimate mental health issue, as I've said before, is a chemical imbalance. So it is a physical impairment, but this is coming from my husband who is on medication for mental health issues. He's pretty firm that there is no reason that a husband, especially one who has been the primary breadwinner for two, five, ten years, should suddenly hit a point where he suddenly becomes truly incapable of providing for his family and he has to just dead stop. For mental health reasons, again, a physical injury is something else. Now, why is it so important to determine if you are or are not in a 1% situation? Because if you aren't, then the universal call to holiness compounded with your specific obligations to your spouse 
demands that you seek to remedy the situation. The universal call to holiness demands that we seek earnestly to align ourselves with and to conform ourselves to God's designs wherever possible. If God's designs can be reasonably conformed to, then we have no excuse for not trying, for not working towards conformity. And these words like conformity are words to which the world has taught us to be so averse. But while conformity to the ways of the world is a path to hell, Conformity to God's will is the path to heaven. Conformity to God's will is perfection. The more perfect our conformity to God's designs and God's will, the easier the path is to heaven. Easy not meaning devoid of all hardship and suffering, which are the hereditary consequences of sin, but rather devoid of hardship and suffering, which are the direct consequences of our individual sins. Because... A more perfect conformity to God's will is, on a very basic level, avoidance of sin. I think I've talked about this before. It's important to remember that just because we confess something, just because it's forgiven, doesn't mean that the long-term natural ramifications of committing that sin are miraculously removed. An excellent example is addiction. You confess the sin. And the sin is forgiven. But the addictive tendency does not miraculously go away upon having received absolution. So if you confess an instance of, say, disrespect against your husband, the long-term effects of that disrespect on your husband do not simply melt away. You have to work to make amends. You have to work to reverse the effects of that disrespect on your husband. And really making amends for our sins is a given. And I think in recent generations, this is just a point of poor catechesis. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1459, reads, quote, Many sins wrong our neighbor. One must do what is possible in order to repair the harm, such as return stolen goods, restore the reputation of someone slandered, pay compensation for injuries. Simple justice requires as much. But sin also injures and weakens the sinner himself, as well as his relationship with God and his neighbor. Absolution takes away sin, but it does not remedy all the disorders sin has caused. Raised up from sin, the sinner must still recover his full spiritual health by doing something more to make amends for the sin. He must make satisfaction for or expiate his sins. This satisfaction is also called penance. End quote. So this is a point of poor catechesis, I believe, because I get the sense that people think that once they've confessed, the rosary that they're given as penance is the entirety of the penance. When really, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The expectation is that you will also work to make amends for the long-term effects of your sin. And the priest shouldn't have to tell you that. So in marriage, when you commit a sin against your husband, your confessor shouldn't have to tell you that just because he gave you a rosary to pray means that God will take care of healing your husband from the sin you committed against him. He does that through you, through your efforts, to make amends. God heals your husband with your cooperation. That goes back to this quote we heard from Mother Teresa back in episode 9, quote, Christ has no body but yours, 
No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. End quote. If a husband has suffered emasculation at the hands of his wife, once she realizes that, she ought to spend the rest of her life working to reverse the lingering effects of that emasculation, if she is serious about pursuing sainthood. Also, it is quite troubling to hear wives in marriages which are pretty far from the biblical model of marriage saying things like, well, this is God's will. Where I am is just God's will for me right now. Ladies, God never wills disorder. God never wills for you to remain in a disordered situation. When a woman who is not in a 1% situation makes this statement, we have to call that for what that is. It's just an excuse to remain in her sin. If there is a disordered situation in a marriage to which she has contributed, or God forbid, which she has created, which she has initiated, it is never God's will that she remain in that disorder, that she persist in that disorder, that she continue to contribute to the disorder in her marriage. His will is always that order should be restored. That's not, my gosh, that's not like a tratty opinion. <laughs> that's a hard fact. God's will always points us to order, to his order, the order that he created. And where there is God's order, there is peace. That's what we mean in the Roman canon when the priest prays, quote, Therefore, Lord, we pray, graciously accept this oblation of our service, that of your whole family. Order our days in your peace and command that we be delivered from eternal damnation and counted among the flock of those you have chosen, end quote. Order our days in your peace. There is peace where there is God's order. A marriage where the wife is the sole breadwinner is a fundamentally disordered situation. Man was sent into the world to work it in order to provide for the needs of his family. And his wife has an obligation to facilitate God's order in her family. In episode four, we shared some passages from Castico Nobi, an encyclical from Pope Pius XI, and I want to reread some of what we already shared along with some parts that we did not share previously. These are from paragraphs 74 and 75 of the encyclical in full. Quote, the same false teachers who try to dim the luster of conjugal faith and purity do not scruple to do away with the honorable and trusting obedience which the woman owes to the man. Many of them go even further and assert that such a subjection of one party to the other is unworthy of human dignity, that the rights of husband and wife are equal, wherefore they boldly proclaim the emancipation of women has been or ought to be effected. This emancipation in their ideas must be threefold in the ruling of the domestic society, 
in the administration of family affairs, and in the rearing of the children. It must be social, economic, physiological. Physiological, that is to say, the woman is to be freed at her own good pleasure from the burdensome duties properly belonging to a wife as companion and mother. We have already said this, that this is not an emancipation but a crime. Social, inasmuch as the wife being freed from the cares of children and family should, to the neglect of these, be able to follow her own bent and devote herself to business and even public affairs. Finally, economic, whereby the woman, even without the knowledge and against the wish of her husband, may be at liberty to conduct and administer her own affairs, giving her attention chiefly to these rather than to children, husband, and family. This, however, is not the true emancipation of woman, nor that rational and exalted liberty which belongs to the noble office of a Christian woman and wife. It is rather the debasing of the womanly character and the dignity of motherhood, and indeed of the whole family, as a result of which the husband suffers the loss of his wife, the children of their mother, and the home and the whole family of an ever-watchful guardian. More than this, this false liberty and unnatural equality with a husband is to the detriment of the woman herself. For if the woman descends from her truly regal throne, to which she has been raised within the walls of the home by means of the gospel, she will soon be reduced to the old state of slavery, if not in appearance, certainly in reality, and become as amongst the pagans the mere instrument of man. End quote. You know, another thing I hear women say about a situation where they are the sole breadwinner and it's not a 1% situation is that their husband should be grateful that they're willing to do what they claim that he cannot or will not. And I think that this passage from Casti Konubi puts a comment like that into perspective. A wife who is the primary or sole breadwinner in a situation where she need not be is objectively contributing to her husband's emasculation. She's also enabling, or even worse, possibly forcing, coercing, his abdication of headship. Is that really something that she thinks she should be thanked for? Does she really think that her husband should thank her for deliberately choosing to be an obstacle on his path to heaven? Does she really think that she should be thanked for doing the exact opposite of what she vowed to do, which was to be his helpmate on the way to heaven? So, what do you do if you're in a situation which can be changed? Well, ladies, that's where we'll pick up in Compensating Part 5. Peace. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you, and we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm -hmm.